Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Part two of our conversation with Susan and Gina explores other ventures in the Inspiral Network, which are employing feminist practices to build cultures and companies motivated by agency, autonomy, and self-organization. Thank you for sharing that, Gina. I think that when you were talking about privilege of volunteering and your book, Better Work Together, I was thinking about the privilege of breastfeeding and and how so many women of color, especially women who are less economically secure, they don't have the space or the the accommodations in their work environments usually, or the social capital to demand accommodations to be able to breastfeed and potentially also like access to the knowledge that that's helpful to their health and the health of their baby. And so I think that this concept of security from really uncertainty, being able to not just participate in volunteering, but also become aware of your network and even consider joining it? Is that something that people of color of different economic and wealth statuses have been able to access? And how do they come to the network, those who might be less privileged? I personally think that we have done very badly at inviting that type of diversity into the network for parts of the reason that we've identified around the privilege required to do this the acknowledgement. Um, so by and large, it's not a economically or ethnically very diverse network at all. It's predominantly white people from a you know relative background of privilege, social from a social economic status. I don't know if you disagree, Susan. No, not at all. And um, you know, in trying to rationalize it for myself, um, I, I can't. And at the same time. We've been wondering for a long time how how we could be doing it differently, but then also considering how and where is our place in that. For me recently, I've been um, thinking, you know, we were at the summer retreat in February this year uh, because obviously we're in the Southern Hemisphere, so our summer is in, um, you know, January January and February. Uh, And I was looking around the room and I said, perhaps Inspiral is is an example of white people practicing community for people that have been so out of touch with their personal and geographic um, histories that perhaps this is a place where we practice how we come together in ways that other ethnic groups or people from different social or cultural backgrounds have been doing very deeply for generations. And I mean, I grew up um, as a, in a small nuclear family in the center of Berlin. There wasn't very much community where I grew up in the in the truest sense of the word, and it's something I have found here in ways that far exceeds beyond anything I could have ever expected for for my own life. Like I'm delighted by it, and it doesn't, you know, like you say, Susan. At at the same time, still I look around the room and wonder how homogenous we are as a group, and 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 how we do that. And still, you know, thinking about my own role in this. Um, when I returned from parental leave um, about a year and a half ago, I had these conditions or principles that I wanted for a, for a job, for an employment, for my own life. And it was really, it was really set on having part-time work in a um, 
challenging and complex role in something that was well paid, that was possibly remote when it needed to, to be family friendly, flexible working hours. And I know that that's a list that many people can only dream of. And nonetheless, it's something I found at Dev Academy where I essentially run, you know, human resources, finances and operations on 24 hours a week. Um, and when I need to bring my toddler into work, she comes along, you know, when she's sick or we don't have um, daycare for her, I can bring her along and she's she's made to feel welcome mm. and she plays with my colleagues and the people in the space. So um, for me, that's where I feel like we're prototyping a new way of being and working in a kind of late stage capitalism era. Yeah. I actually think it's okay if this first stage is, as you described, white people practicing community. I think that's okay because in the U.S., white people practice community around their identity of right-wing Christian evangelicalism so or gun ownership or their connection to toxic masculinity. So this is actually healthier and a great shift to help them maybe see some other parts of their humanity that they haven't accessed and to tap into that and, and to nurture it in a safe way. I think that um, what we've seen with the book, um, which is kind of taken on a bit of a life of its own, we, we, we recognize that we, it wasn't that difficult for us to actually magic up, I think, a, a really nice um, artifact and document of uh, personal stories, learnings, practices, um, and ideas around what could be possible if community was the business. And uh, in, one thing we, di we didn't particularly get right because we don't seem to have the, the, the skills in, in our ecosystem currently around marketing a book. Um, <laughs> so nevertheless, we've sold um, about 1,500 copies, which I think is, is pretty cool. But it's interesting because I get the notification every time a book is sold and it's interesting for me that there's no pattern or rhyme or reason to that. Like I think the last five books that were sold over the weekend, Singapore, South Korea, India, Brazil, and France, right? And the idea that there's some there's something in the zeitgeist or in the air of just thinking that there's humans or groups of humans collecting themselves in the far reaches of this planet looking for a little bit of inspiration from some folks that have been practicing it for a while is just kind of more than I could ever like imagine um, or hope our contribution could be. And yeah, just super excited also that you somehow managed to find to find us and uh, were interested enough to to reach out to talk to talk to us on your podcast. Very well. I um, I'm. I feel privileged that I get to speak to you and share what you do with my audience uh, and hopefully with more people who are in this space doing work in social impact and social enterprises and thinking differently about it as well. Because one of the struggles that I have is even though I'm very steeped in the gender justice space, there are people who might call themselves allies and who may even be survivors of gender-based violence and they're not necessarily reliable allies in the work. And it's everybody knows that you can potentially take on the tools and the um, practices of dominant culture and, and um, replicate them. And a lot of people in the space that I encounter do do that. And so this consciousness raising is something that's a continuous process that we have to engage in uh, and to interrogate. And and I want to get back to, Susan, what you had brought up earlier, the tyranny of structurelessness. 
I actually read that article. A consultant, a friend of mine, shared it with me, and I wanted to actually bring it up. So I'm so happy you brought it up because, in the context of the way you described the Inspiral Network and the governance structure, I was curious how, um, especially since some of the folks I believe at Lumio have a background in the Occupy movement, and that was one of the criticisms of the Occupy movement, that there eventually this um, sort of overwhelming desire for um, you know, collective decision-making got in the way of actually anything getting done. Um, and so I want to just dig a little more into the different ventures and how people who are working at those uh, individual ventures decide how to split their time between the actual work that they're doing and, and the commitment that they're making to the customers that are using their products and services versus, I think you mentioned 15%. I don't know if that was like a, a, just a random number or if it was a, a guidepost, but the 15% of the time that members might have to actually explore the initiatives on Slack, for example? And did you say there were 150 of them? So if there are that many, how do people actually decide what to do and how do those projects actually have some accountability in moving forward? Perhaps just to clarify, so there's the Ventures and I look at Inspiral Dev Academy, um, there's about 22 people who are employed by the legal entity that's Inspiral Dev Academy. And out of those, I think there's about five people who are proactively involved in the Inspiral network. So the other 17 or so are making their livelihood through a venture that come out of Inspiral, but aren't necessarily involved in the inner working of the network. I see. So not all the employees of every Inspiral network venture is a member of the Inspiral network. No, but they can be. And it de- again, it depends on the capacity, on the interest. Uh, on the demands on their life. And um, for me, for example, I mean, I find it easiest to speak from specific experience. Like I said, you know, I have a small child at home. I work um, at the moment about 28 hours, I think, for Inspiral Dev Academy. And I probably at the moment give maybe two hours a week to Inspiral. So whether that's 15%, um, can't quite tell you, definitely not in terms of the capacity in my life at the moment. And it's varied. Um, You know, there have been phases in my life where I was actively involved in every conversation on Lumio, whereas now, you know, I do that at a relatively minimal level because of the demands of my life in other other areas. And, yeah, maybe, Susan, you can speak from your own experience what that's been like for you recently. Yeah, I mean, um, and 15% was just a number I pulled out of the air, so no, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, so for me recently, it my work commitments have been such that um, my time has been, it, you know, it's variable, right? It's, it's different all of the time. So my, I guess my acts of service to the, to the, to the whole are, are my role um, on the minimum viable board. I also step in and out of a role of supporting the Catalyst um, uh, cohort. Uh, I, I, I really do try to, you know, read all of the Lumios and participate as much as I can. Um, but I think that, I think that one of the, one of the things that Inspiral has done well is like recognized and acknowledged that we all go through this and there's no judgment or, um, feeling of, 
um, you know, letting down the side if we're not able to be on, you know, 15%, 20%, or even 5% all of the time. And I think that that has again allowed the, the work that people choose to do to sometimes be more specific to um, the time that they have, right? And I think that the working group format allows that. One thing that I wanted to get back to, though, a little bit, um, thinking about your uh, wondering about uh, the decision decision making. If I think back to the some of the, you know some of the critique of uh, Occupy and sitting in circles trying to make collective coherent decisions together, um, my understanding is that some of the patterns that turned up, even in 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 those circumstances were reflective of, you know, traditional hegemonic patriarchal patterns, like the loudest man in the circle with the most context taking up most of the space. And even though there might have been an awareness of that, the striving for uh, agreement or coherence um, sometimes makes those male, loud, context-rich voices um, um, act out in even stronger ways, even in the conditions and the scenarios where that's not um, either what's expected or what's possible. And the idea of how could technology help us start to break some of those characteristics that are uh, endemic in the way that we um, make decisions by creating um, asynchronous modes of uh, offering ideas, allowing for divergence and disagreement, and building coherence more slowly over time, and getting to agreements that aren't based on absolutely everybody in the room having to agree 100% with everything, but building a culture or a expectation of consent, where as long as an idea is safe enough to try. It's not going to fundamentally damage um, anybody or the organism and not going to take it backwards. And somebody is putting themselves um, forward to steward and take responsibility for a decision. Um, I think that that difference, not only from Lumio actually building with that impulse in mind, but in Spiral having our decision protocols based around that uh, principle has been one of the ways that we've been able to, I think, dampen um, those traditional loud male gender voices. And in addition to that, I believe that the in-person meetings we hold as a group um, role model that as well, where not only, I mean, you know, I, I think the rules that if women speak 15% of the time they're perceived to be speaking 50% of the time or whatever those kind of weird rules are. Um, not, not rules, but what, uh, what people perceive. Uh, that those are the types of things that we challenge implicitly and explicitly at Inspiral, where we do say things like, can we hear from the people who haven't spoken? Or, um, you know, we do rounds where everyone gets the chance to speak in an uninterrupted manner, and it sounds extremely basic, but it's liberating to those who don't traditionally get the chance to be heard because they speak more quietly 
they take another three seconds to think um, or they're not the first ones, you know, to put themselves out there. So I feel like for me personally, it's built a practice of really, really great meetings, facilitation, process design, um, whether it's in the own programs and processes that are run up to the retreat. And also I know some of the work that, um, that other people are hosting around the world and kind of five day long workshops that's really deeply embedded in how we build participation for group structures um, that lots of people are really skilled in or are building their skills in through their participation at and with Inspiral. Yeah, I mean, doing those practices, right? And I think to wrap up this kind of part, it, uh, another important thing I think that we, that we did either through luck or judgment um, was we, we never really instantiated or put tools in. We always took time to notice, reflect, and iterate on our behavior or our natural patterns and ways of doing things, and then built the technology to support that, not the other way around. Mm, interesting. So would, would you say that the working groups, they're just sort of places for incubating ideas, and so to the extent that someone might be participating in a working group and life circumstances change and um, they need to step out or step back a little bit. It's not like there's some sort of critical consequence uh, or some deliverable that then needs to be taken up by another member of the group. Is that right? No, and working groups are actually action-oriented. So working groups normally do have um, some sort of outcome orientation. However, there are some working groups that don't. So the Maybe talk about the Brown Working Group, how that member that cohort of membership allows some people. Yeah, so the Brand Working Group is one example that's a very light touch way of being engaged for me. Um, it's at its basics a spreadsheet that people fill in internally when they want to use the Inspiral brand on a website or a proposal or you know whatever that they may be doing that's that's representing the wider network. And then a few of us look at that and we evaluate the risk um, of being associated with that or the opportunity as well and then um, give a very brief, yep, this looks fine to us, kind of sign off to that. So it doesn't have to be, um, you know, very involved, but there is accountability on us to do what we set out to do. So I think if the main folks involved in that part of the network all didn't deliver on responding, then that's a failure on us to communicate our changing ability to contribute. So if I said, or if I notice perhaps that I can't answer those requests, even though they may be infrequent, then I would feel responsible to make sure that the others knew I couldn't. Uh, so they no longer rely on me to answer those requests or be part of those, um, of the processing of those. And so it goes back to the personal responsibility we take for our participation. And if we can't, for a while, for whatever reason, be part, then it will be on us to communicate that. And obviously, if there's like, you know, life circumstances that mean people have to disappear or see family overseas, then uh, obviously that's a different matter where but other people would take over the communication on their behalf uh, because the level of care is always there for the individual. So, um, yeah, there's not really one, one way of going about it, but the accountability piece is definitely a big one. 
and that's something we've been working on um, partly like Susan said, you know, we, we build the fun, um, what's it called, the function based on the need. And so the working groups came out of wanting to coordinate an easier way in for people to find their way around, but also to build accountability and communication amongst the different tracks of work that we know need to get done. So what, what does consent mean? Is there, does it differ from working group to working group? Is it, is it literally like a majority, a quorum? <laughs> does it have to be does it have to be acquired by a certain time? So within a certain time period before the deliverable, the next deliverable of the project is met? There's actually a variety of decisions that we have um, clarified and written actually as part of the handbook that Susan has mentioned. So I think it's handbook.inspiral.com. That's um, our open source version of all the processes and um, decisions that we have come across and documented so far. And there it lays out what type of uh, decision requires what type of participation. So some of them are quorum one, some of them stipulate a minimum engagement. Some of them are, you know, if I if I take part in the decision, um, then my vote counts. If I don't, obviously, then it doesn't. So, um, yeah, there's a variety depending on the um, importance and requirement of that decision. Wow, that's awesome. Do you know other organizations outside of your network that have been testing and implementing the handbook and the processes? Oh, yeah, yeah, lots. And and we've got we've also got a list. There might be even in the handbook a list of other handbooks. And I actually just found another handbook this weekend by a company out of Poland called the Software Mill. So, yeah, they're they're it's a it's a pattern that is replicating. Any in the US that you're aware of that are using these processes and structures? Oh, yeah, a lot. Probably more than I could name now, but I'm happy to get back to you on that. Okay, cool. And the thing with that to keep in mind is too that obviously it's not necessarily our handbook that, you know, inspired those others, but it's very much a reciprocal process um, of documenting and a general trend, I guess, coming from often the software industry to document processes and um, procedures as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess in general, it's a trend to document and open source yeah, I love our friend Alana Irving's um, uh, uh, um, tagline, which is, if it's not documented, it's not open source. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I would say that if it's not documented, um, it's also not something that happens very much uh, or can't mm-hmm. be acted upon as well. So, so yeah, I mean, you mentioned, Susan, I think you're the one who mentioned Software Mill in Poland. Are there any other models of inspiration that Inspiral has? Well, I think that there, that we've got uh, a few kind of what we'd call sister uh, organizations around the world we share is probably um, the most significant. And that's we share as an um, OUI share based in France or originating in France. Yeah, that carries similar and related ethos, I suppose. But yeah, you're definitely. Susan's been out in the world yeah. more than I have recently. So Software Mill is just is just a company that basically um, stood themselves up to be self-organized and self-managed, which means they make all their decisions together and they do all their governance together and everything is transparent. There are um, many examples of companies in the world that are doing similar things. And Haven't you been going to work with a monastery somewhere? Uh, yeah. So it's super interesting. One of the... Um, organizations that I've been working with this year uh, is called um, Tergar. They're a Buddhist organization that is the uh, learning um, 
uh, arm of Amingir Rinpoche, who wrote the book, The Art of Happiness, and has recently been featured on one of the Netflix specials around the Ma, the Ma, I can't, I wish I could think of the name of it. Anyway, he, uh, through Frederick Laloux, who wrote the seminal, seminal book that I think inspired so many of us in this space, um, Reinventing Organization, introduced us to uh, Rinpoche and my colleague Lisa Gill and myself were in Kathmandu earlier this year, uh, helping this decentralized organization of volunteers. Um, surprise, surprise! Try to solve all of the same problems. How do how do we how do we organize volunteer energy? How do we make decisions together? How do we uh, spend our money together? How do we share our gifts in a way that's productive? You know, any most organizations in the world have all of these same. Um, questions and impulses, and more and more organizations of all shape and size are sort of having this this co- kind of collective conscious awareness that we don't need to keep organizing the way that Frederick Wimslow Taylor told us to in his scientific management papers at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Why have we not questioned our way of organizing? We've made so many um, you know, process enhancements and developments uh, around, around everything that has to do with what we produce and how we produce it. Why have we not taken the time to actually focus our awareness on the scaffolding or the structure under which those, these, our organizations are, are organized? And I think that a growing awareness that, oh, wow, okay, right? I maybe don't have to do it this way anymore, but oh, gosh, I don't know how to do it in any other way. And plus, I have to unlearn all of that is just really starting to become a crest of the wave that I'm just feeling is a very hopeful sign for a more feminist, a more egalitarian, a more participatory approach to work full stop. And that's where Occlency and Spiral, not only as a prototype, but also as a personal development ground for everyone who comes into this and, you know, participates in it or is around for a variety of uh, length of time. And, um, yeah, the, the learnings people go through personally of that unlearning, you know, I've come from a heavily corporate uh, culture and background for the first few working years of my life and to realize that life can be different and you can question authority and you can, you know, speak up when you have opinions, even though it's not your place, perceived or, you know, real. Uh, All of that takes emotional dedication and work from the individual to be able to, to, to do that and progress that. So, yeah. And, and, and yeah, and I think you're right. And I, I think the way that I kind of sum that up is that there's something that's always been implicit in, in Spiral that it's expected that you'll be doing your internal work as well as, as well as the inside work as well as the outside work. And even that, that implicit, explicit invitation, but the way of being that is enabled by the ability to hold one another in that, in a way that prioritizes care, is I think something that could be the most important feminine element of organizing that we can offer. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking earlier when Gina was talking about working groups and how if life circumstances change and people's ability to contribute fluctuates over time, that they have to proactively um, share with the group um, those changes. And sometimes, you know, people who really are like overachievers um, and, and really want to just maybe like fear of missing out, whatever it is, like it, it's a hard process to go through and a hard place to come to that realization that, oh, I can't give as much as I would like. And it requires a level of self-analysis and self-awareness that I would guess is already a part of, is a self-selected part of anyone who wants to be a part of the network because they've already decided that this is something they are intentional about wanting to be a part of. Does that sound accurate? I think so. And it, for me, it speaks back to when I said, oh, everyone shows up for their own reasons. Everyone's done their, you know, everyone's been on their own journey to arrive at, at this place. And the ability to self-reflect on why, you know, maybe not initially knowing why, but over time working out um, why people choose to show up and choose to stay or choose to go is such an important one in that. And uh, I think that sense of, um, can I step in, can I step out, and the work required, the internal work, Susan, that you mentioned too, is related to that sentiment around showing up as your whole self. So um, making sure that we acknowledge the different parts in our lives that create pressures and boundaries and opportunities for us to be part of something or not be part of something. Um, but it's okay to share that um, in, a, in a business sense too, if you want. So that practice of checking in and seeing how people are uh, that we do, you know, um, whether it's as part of a gathering or within the ventures and group, working groups that we're part of, that is a strong practice of beginning every time of seeing how are you, what's on your mind, what do you need to say so you feel like you've arrived in this meeting and or in this space. And arguably, we don't do it every time for every half-hour meeting that we have amongst three of us when I sit next to them all day. But if it's something that's more ritualistic, you know, we've got the um, staff meeting and process at the moment, and I know it'll kick off with the ability for everyone to speak um, something about themselves and how, how they are. So um, that's a practice that definitely has trickled through all different parts of the network. Absolutely, yeah. Um, micro practices that become rituals start to um, kind of build our muscles for maybe that deeper, more introspective or, or potentially scarier levels of sharing. Um, because it just becomes the part of it. This becomes part of how we show up for each other and with each other. And another interesting thing that you mentioned, Gina, just in that in your last little um, reflection, it's also okay to leave in spiral. Quite a few people that we know and love and trust and are still in our lives and will always be in our lives have you know taken the taken the very clear articulated step of moving away for a season or moving away forever because it's either not serving where they where they are in the, in this particular time in their life or you know and, and for any other reason and i think that that you know in spiral is is not necessarily a forever place it's a living place people are always joining and people are always stepping away stepping back it it's it's it breathes and it never stay static. Is it in Spiral's intention to create 
a platform for and a space for other organizations, other industries, individuals, groups, etc., to be inspired by and to potentially replicate these practices? Or do you actively go out and try to, for lack of a better word, you know, mobilize certain sectors that you think might be open to adapting these practices? I don't think it's necessarily, it wasn't the original intention, I don't think. I think it started as an experiment to see what was possible. And then over time, we've noticed that you know, people started getting approached to speak at conferences and give workshops and, you know, be part of podcasts like these and say, there's something about what you're doing that is that is different. And um, one of the main pieces of that was people saying, lots of people are talking about how you can do this, but you are actually doing it. And so for us, it was um, a very action, you know, focused approach of saying, let's do this and let's write it up afterwards, as opposed to like a hypothetical manifesto of how one could. And we got to a point of realizing that we probably had enough stories to write a book about it, which is how the book has come about. Because people kept asking, um, you know, how, how do you do this? What, what else? Tell us some stories about what's happened. So if we hadn't done the seven or, or so years of work prior, we would have never been able to write a book about, about this journey, about this evolving journey. But because we've been you know, numerous generations of people have been dedicated to this cause in one way or another. The stories and experience has emerged to be able to capture it and write about it. And like Susan said, the people who are showing interest in it are so far afield that we never would have dared. And if the positive byproduct of us doing this is inspiring more people to change their practices or their approach, then that's great. And we can only do that by keeping on doing you know, keeping on being an action as opposed to as opposed to not doing that. Yeah, and I think that um, I think that a, a very clear filter that or recognition or realization that many of us have around um, both the sensitivity to and the reality of colonization almost is um, part of the reason why we haven't like gone and like built outposts in other parts of the world because that's not our work to do. Um, it's the work of every community, every agglomeration or collective of humans that want to start experimenting with different ways to orient, to work, to do that. Um, and all we are here is to support that and in whatever way we can. And sure, we have people, you know, all over the world traveling and um, kind of uh, spreading ideas or helping people set up different experiments. But um, yeah, it was never the intention. Um, of Inspiral to create something that um, colonized the world into action around our particular version of what good looks like. We are not about that. We are about building capacity, helping to support others to build their own capacity to create whatever is um, appropriate for their particular meaningful and significant work. And can people outside of your geographic region be a part of your network? Because you, you mentioned earlier the uh, coffee, beer, and pizza <laughs> a contribution. And so if people are physically not situated in a location where they can build those relationships with your network, is it still possible to be part of your network? Yeah, definitely. There's a, a whole number of people who are um, in a variety of places from 
South Korea to North America to various places in Europe, um, South America. Uh, I don't know if we've got any contributors in Africa at the moment, but it's going pretty far afield either way. And uh, even though, I mean, lots of those, you know, it might not be a literal coffee, beer or pizza, but it might be a Zoom call or a Slack check-in. There's many ways to build relationships and be part of, part of a group with increasing digital um, ability. And what probably has to be said is that those pe people who are, in particular those remote, are probably more tech literate uh, than they're not. Mm. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be a developer by any means, but being comfortable on Zoom, on Google Doc, on Slack definitely helps to engage, even the, for the people who live in Wellington, because there's not necessarily a physical co-location or somewhere where we meet in person every day or every week necessarily. Um, and nonetheless, people are part of it from around the globe. However, a, a fair bunch of them do commit to show up in person to our retreats or organize gatherings in their parts of the world to connect with other people who are also part of the network. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always the big invitation, right? Come come to New Zealand for a couple of weeks. Easier said um, than done, that Easier said than done, right? Um, and, and late January, early Feb, you know, come to Summer Festival and there's always adjacent activities either side of that um, to kind of have that in, in, in person time. I guess that's one pattern definitely that if you've, you've had the privilege and the opportunity to come and spend time with us in person and really kind of soak up the whole yeah, the 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 vibe, I guess. Um, being able to then go back to your corner of the of the of the planet and continue to uh, engage is easier. So, before I get to our concluding questions, is there an email address or a website you mentioned earlier? There's an operational process for people who are interested in joining the network and being considered. Is there an email that you can share? Um, I don't actually know the email itself, but it's definitely listed on inspiral.com, uh, which is E-N-S-P-I-R-A-L.com. Um, and there'll be a, it might even be a hello at, I believe. I think so. And the handbook again is handbook.inspiral.com. And find out more about the book at Better Work Together. That's all one word, dot co. Great. Thank you. So at the end of Every interview, I ask each of my guests a set of questions that I've adapted from inside the actor studio called the Engendered Questionnaire. My first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Just a small question for the end there. I believe it's action on all levels. Uh, systemic responses, community responses, personal responsibility. In New Zealand recently, we've had a change in the family violence uh, legislation that's allowing people who suffer from domestic violence to take paid leave um, to, you know, process and deal and recover from situations of domestic violence, which is one, you know, that's a systemic or systems level intervention that's making it more possible for people to deal with that. And then at a personal level, it's standing up to, you know, remarks that minimise the experience of others when people say, believe women, you know, it's as to a degree, to one degree, it's as simple as, as that and hearing people out and 
believing that people aren't lying about the horrible experiences that they may have gone through. So I believe it takes action and responsibility on on all levels. I would just yes and with everything's at stake. What gives you hope? For me at the moment, it's been the conversations about anything from whiteness to privilege to rage, um, the youth climate strike and, uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion. I think the people who question the status quo again and again, even in the face of, you know, little optimism, that hope remains in, in those situations either way. Um, mine's pretty simple, awareness and discernment. Final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? For a large part of the world, I think it's coming to terms with people's colonizing past of, you know, whether it's from a gender point of view, from a patriarchy point of view, from a population point of view of acknowledging that um, there's a difference in power and how we see and perceive power and that needs to shift. Yeah. White men need to get out the way. I, I think my, white men need to get out of the way. We need to keep naming it. And white men need to also start participating and naming it. Well, Susan and Gina, thank you both so much for joining the show today. I look forward to testing out these ideas and practices in the work and initiatives that I'm involved in. Awesome. Thank you, Terry. Thanks. It's been great. Uh, look forward to whatever comes next. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.